Well, if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, we're working our way through uh, the book of Luke. And now we've uh, come upon uh, verse 12, where Jesus calls the 12 apostles. We're going to read through verse 19. Luke chapter 6, starting verse 12. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot, and Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who had become, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all of Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed all of them. You might be wondering this morning, what sort of message are we going to get out of a list of names? The fact that Jesus chose 12, and uh, what I realized as I began to study this passage is uh, like what happens so often is you start diving into God's Word, and there's so much to be said. Uh, for what are in these verses. And a big part of the message is in who he chose. And, and we're going to look at some of that uh, this morning. Uh, now, I don't know if uh, many of you had the same experience as me as a child uh, growing up on the playground. Uh, we would play ball games, we'd play basketball, or we'd play football and uh, how we would choose teams is there would always be two captains, and then those two captains would pick, and almost always the last person picked was always the last person picked, and almost always everything just kind of fell in line. You kind of knew where your pecking order was in your athletic ability, and uh, this may have been painful for you, um, for me, it was painful in one sense because at Grant School in Watertown, South Dakota, Grant School right on Highway 81 and 7th Avenue there, I knew where I was at in the pecking order. I was number two. And you might think, well, that's not that bad. And uh, I think the Lord did gift me with some athletic ability. But the problem was, is number one was really number one. Uh, his name was David, and he was so much better than me that I believe my winning percentage at Grant School is like 1%. Literally, 
I was always a captain, and David was always a captain, and whoever I picked, their shoulders would shrug, and they'd just be like, we're going to lose, because if you're on David's team, you won. I mean, and I'm saying, there was a big gap. We had the free throw shooting contest in gym class, uh, where if you did good, you could go to the state level and then go to the national level. Uh, well, in our school, he made 25 out of 25 free throws as a sixth grader. And then he went to the state level and made 50 out of 50. And then he got second at nationals with 90, 99 free throws out of 100. So David was good and I was not in comparison. Well, sometimes I feel like just to kind of humor us, he would pick the worst person first. And it was a cocky move because he knew he could win by picking the worst. And so it actually made his glory look better. And in a sense, uh, we see Jesus uh, doing that uh, very same thing as his goal is to glorify his father the other illustration on the front end uh, I want to give you uh, has to do with you imagining uh, a car that you own that doesn't run very good. I'm not talking about my truck, but I may be. It doesn't run very well. And uh, for weeks of worrying about it, all of a sudden it breaks down on the side of the road, just quits running. So it gets towed to your mechanic. You show up there, and uh, you decide that you're going to stay and help your mechanic along, watch him work on your car. Now, I know most of you, if you've ever been in a mechanic shop, they have this funny little sign that they hang up behind their desk that says something like this, labor rates. Uh, $70 an hour minimum, $100 if you watch, $150 if you help, $200 if you've already worked on it. And I think every mechanic shop I've been to, I've seen that sign, which tells me it's not just a funny thing, but it's kind of like, ha ha, this is how we really feel. Don't sit here and watch. But I want you to imagine for a moment, you're sitting there, and you decide to stay, you're going to watch him, and you're going to help him. And he starts looking at it, and, and you, you begin to chime up. You kind of look over the hood, and you point out, hey, look, uh, there's no washer fluid in the washer fluid tank. You might want to check that out. Maybe that's the problem. And the mechanic's kind of, whatever, you know, <laughs> okay. And then he goes working, and it's like, hey, you might want to look over here. I don't know if you noticed the washer fluid. It's low. You might want to try that before you go on to the rest of it. And uh, we all know how silly that is because the mechanic eventually is going to say, you're an idiot. The washer fluid has nothing to do with whether or not your car runs. Now, you might think that's over the top and that's crazy, but if I were to ask you why you aren't stepping out 
in bold faith to be used of God, you're going to give me a list of something like this. I don't know enough. I'm not gifted. I'm not a people person. So-and-so would be better. I'm not worthy. I'll just make it worse. I don't talk well. If I ask you to give a list of your weaknesses that you don't bring to the table for God to use you, you're going to give me a big, long list. And from this text and from the Scripture and what the Gospel says is, hey, it has nothing to do with that. Being used of God has nothing to do with how great you are. And as Jesus picks who nobody would pick, he's doing it to remind us that the work of God through human beings is all a work of God for his glory. And your excuses are as silly as saying, you can't use me because there's no washer fluid in the car. The car won't run without washer fluid. It's that silly to point to those excuses, and yet you're going to be tempted to do it. Now, uh, there's five things I want us to learn about Jesus because as he picks the apostles, we're learning about Christ. This passage is all about Christ, even though it's a list of the 12 uh, apostles. So I want you to ponder this morning And when I say ponder, I mean slow down and think about what is going on in this text. I want you to ponder the unrelenting prayer of Jesus. Notice right away in verse 12, in these days, he went out to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer to God. This is going to be a short point because we've touched on it before, but it's a good reminder. Jesus, the Son of God, when he's going to make an important decision, prays all night long because he laid down his independent use of his divine attributes in order to listen to what the Father has for him and to do it in the power of the Spirit. Jesus Christ lived on this earth totally dependent on his Father and the power of the Spirit for him to live out the life God had for him. And the application is easy, pray. Prayer tells a lot about a person. Where is your hope? How gifted do you think you are? How wise do you think you are? How much power do you think you have? And if Jesus comes down and he's praying and he's seeking God, then we ought to seek God. So we see Christ's unrelenting prayer. And then we see his unanticipated choice. Got to get my watch going here. The unanticipated choice. Jesus chooses 12 apostles. I want to 
think about the number 12. Is this random or is this specific? I think it's very planned by Christ. It's specific and it has great uh, meaning. He chose 12. In Luke uh, 6.13, when the day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12, and he named them uh, apostles. So in this text, uh, he chooses 12. He names them apostles. Uh, Other places in the New Testament, like John 15, he, he reminds them, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit shall abide, so that whatever you ask in my name, he may give you. And then in in verse 19, he says, "If if you were of the world, the world would love you as it as as its own but because you are not of the world but I chose you out of the world therefore the world hates you so Jesus comes he chooses 12 out of the world they weren't already out of the world they were in it but he wants to remind them I chose you I picked you out of it it's my sovereign choice uh this is not their commissioning We're being told that he chose them in this text. In chapter 9, he's going to commission them, and they're going to go out and do miracles like Jesus did. Right now, uh, in in Luke 6, he's choosing them. Uh, And just to tell you a little bit about the 12 and how they're organized, there's four lists in the New Testament. Uh, in Matthew 10, Mark 3, and Acts one uh, thirteen, where we get the apostles listed, and they're always listed in three groups of four. And those groups are always the same. Peter always heads up the first list. Philip always heads up the second list. James always heads up the third list. And they may be shuffled uh, within their groups, but they're always listed in uh, that order, and they seem to be listed in intimacy with Christ. Group one seems most intimate with Christ. Uh, group two, you could say, is medium. And group three, uh, we hardly know anything about group three except uh, uh, Judas uh, Iscariot, the traitor. And uh, so we see three groups of four, but here's the important thing I want you to think about, the unanticipated choice of Jesus. This is what the Jews could not imagine, and I want to quote John MacArthur, and I'm going to quote him several times today. He's done such a great study uh, on the apostles. He wrote a book called 12 Ordinary Men. That's a wonderful book, and he, <laughs> and it's so rich as you look at these uh, different apostles. But here's what he says. He says the Lord chose, that the Lord chose 12 men is not random because that number was symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel. The importance of the number was underscored by the addition of Matthias to take Judas's place in Acts one twenty three. Since Israel and its leaders were apostate, the twelve were to serve as leaders of the new and true Israel of God. 
the redeemed, the believing remnant. Jesus made that connection clear in Luke 22, 29, when he told the 12 that they would reign over Israel in the millennial kingdom. Just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant to you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's Luke 22. And so what MacArthur's pointing out is Jesus is doing an unanticipated thing in replacing the 12 tribes of Israel and their leaders that have not been good shepherds, they've not led the people of Israel well, with 12 ordinary men. This is an unanticipated move that Jesus makes. This would be a highly offensive move Jesus makes. And Luke's teaching and or Jesus' teaching in Luke 22 would infuriate the leaders of Israel. In fact, in Revelation 21, in verse 12, here, here's what we hear about uh, the New Jerusalem. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. So every name of the 12 tribes of Israel is inscribed on these gates. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were written the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So don't miss the significant event that is taking place. The foundation of the city has the names of the 12 apostles. And And so we see the unanticipated choice of Jesus. No one would have been expecting Jesus uh, to, in a sense, bring about 12 new leaders that are going to represent God's true Israel. Third, ponder the unstoppable words of Jesus. And here we see the purpose of the apostles and, and what it even means. What does the word apostle mean? It refers to a representative, an ambassador, or a messenger. Uh, it, it refers to a Jewish concept uh, called the shaliach. A shaliach in, in uh, the time of Jesus' day was a person that represented with full authority a person who isn't there. So as the Jews were uh, spread out uh, out of uh, Palestine and out into the regions, when certain rabbis would go out and teach Jews that were far out, they would teach, uh, they, they were in a sense shaliachs on behalf of the Sanhedrin. They represented the full authority of the leaders of Israel. And Jesus is saying, these men who I picked, they're messengers, they're apostles, they carry my very word and my very authority. 
So even as Jesus ascends up into heaven, his word, his unstoppable word is still present and begins to spread across the earth. And the foundation of Christ's teaching was through the apostles. In Mark 3.14, here's what Mark writes. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles. Here's the two reasons he appointed them. So that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. Why did he choose them? To be with him, spend time with him, get to know him, love him, so they can preach. Christ's word goes out through the apostles' teaching. That's why when you read through the book of Acts, the church was adhering to the teaching of the apostles because the teaching of the apostles is the teaching of Christ. In fact, in 2 Peter uh, 1.20, here's what we find out about Scripture. Peter says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. A prophet never just speaks his own ideas. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, Peter says, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is how Scripture was written. It was written through men, but it was God's very words because the Holy Spirit carried them along. In fact, uh, in chapter 3 of Second Peter, this is what Peter says about Paul's letters. He says, and count the patience, this is uh, 2 Peter 3.15, and count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of these manners, uh, of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, speaking of Paul's letters, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So there Peter is recognizing Paul's writings as not just writings, but as scripture. He's saying some people are twisting Paul's writings as they do other scriptures. And in Ephesians 2, if you have your Bibles, you can turn here with me. Ephesians 2, 19 As Paul is laying out the salvation that God has worked for his people, and he's in the process of reminding them that God is building up this building, this temple, where he lives, and he's building it out of you and out of me. We're members of the household of God. Here's what he says. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are now fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God built on a foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. 
So here's the picture. There's a building being built. This is Paul's illustration. And the first thing you do when you build a building, at the corner of the foundation, you have to have a perfect 90-degree cornerstone because every other measurement on that building is coming off that stone. And he says that stone is Christ. But the foundation is built on the apostles and the prophets right off that line. So Jesus comes down and he's the last prophet in a sense. You say, what about the apostles? Well, they're speaking Christ's words. So the cornerstone's been laid. Jesus has taught them. They've been with him. The Holy Spirit reminds them of these things we, we read in John. And they lay the foundation of Christ's teaching. It's the foundation of our faith. Someone says, do we follow the apostles' teaching? Yes. Do we follow Christ's teaching? Yes, it's the same thing. They're representing Christ. The Holy Spirit is speaking Christ's words through them. It's built. That's past tense. It's been laid. We're not waiting for more apostles. We're not waiting for more scripture. The foundation's been laid. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 3, when Paul's talking about building on a foundation, he says this in verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me, he's saying as an apostle, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation Someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay another foundation than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. It's like, wait a minute. Paul's saying, I'm laying a foundation. You better not build off it. But there is no other foundation than Jesus Christ. So the foundation that Paul's laying is Christ's foundation. That's why he says, I have one message. It's Jesus Christ and him crucified. Here's the foundation of the gospel. And in this passage, he's saying, be careful. There's some builders that start building a building off the foundation, and that building's not going to last. It's not going to stand when the test comes. It's going to be burned up in the fire. You're not using good materials. You're building outside of the foundation that's already been laid by Christ and through his apostles. And so we see, even as Christ descends into heaven, the unstoppable word of Christ as he speaks scripture through them and we're given the New Testament. And Paul says, I may be in prison, but the word of God is not bound. It's out there. I don't know if you've uh, seen that movie of the Roman soldier. Someone can help me with the title of it that came out a couple years ago where his job is to find Christ's body after he's been resurrected. I forget what it's called. What is it? Risen. But there, my favorite point of that movie is uh, they find some of the apostles and, and disciples, and they come up to him, and they're like, all right, 
We're already, we're finally going to figure this out. And they say, tell us, where are his followers? So they find a disciple, where are they? Because if they can find them, then he hopes to find the body. And he says, they are everywhere. And chills went through my spine, just going, you can't stop it. You can't stop the word of God working through a bunch of nobodies. You can't, because it's not about them. And I'm getting ahead of myself. All right, so look at number um, four. The unlikely men of Jesus. So ponder the prayer, unrelenting prayer of Jesus, the unanticipated choice of picking 12, the unstoppable words of Christ through these 12, and now the unlikely men of Jesus. Let's just take a quick look at these men. The first four in group one, his most intimate group, ready? The high sophisticated group of fishermen. The most common probably one of the last choices anyone would pick from a worldly perspective. Uh, Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, sons of Zebedee, fishermen. We've already seen that when Christ encountered them, they left the biggest catch a fisherman could ever hope for and followed Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Verse 4 are... Fishermen, there three of them are known to be in his inner, most intimate group. And, and in group one, it's also uh, good to notice that Simon and Andrew are brothers and James and John are brothers. That, that, that's just interesting that in the group one, you could say, you have sets of brothers. But Several times throughout the Gospels, Jesus leaves nine of them behind, and he picks three especially to come in on, on, on special events. I want to show you uh, or, or make note of three of them. In Luke 8, uh, verse 49, what you have is you have a centurion whose daughter's sick. He comes to Jesus. Can you heal her? Jesus says, yes. Jesus is taking his time getting there because he's healing another woman. They come and say, don't bother the teacher. She's already dead. Little girl. Jesus says, take me there. She's just sleeping. They're all laughing. (laughs) Everybody knows she's dead. And in verse 51, it says, And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter, John, and James, and the father of the mother and child. And I read all sorts of stuff about why Jesus might take those three into this inner circle. Some people said, well, maybe they lacked the most faith, so they needed to see the greatest miracles. Other Commentators say, well, they had the greatest faith, and this is going to be the foundation, the main leaders of the apostles. I don't think we'll know for sure until we get to heaven and ask Christ. 
But there's another one that you're familiar with, and I just want to point it out because I want you to see how human they are. So they witness this one. He, he, he says, little girl, get up, and she gets up, and he says, feed her, and they give her food, and he looks at his apostles. His disciples says, don't tell anybody. I don't want anyone to know this. Second time, he goes up on the mountain. This is Matthew 17, 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses, Elijah, uh, talking with him. Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter, in true Peter fashion, who you can just imagine what he's like. He's just speaking before he's thinking. He's always doing and kind of making a fool out of himself. But Jesus, he, he looks at Jesus. Man, Jesus is glowing. Moses is here. Elijah's here. So what does Peter say? Peter says, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. I don't know. What are you going to say? He just says, first thing comes to his mind, it seems like, this is good. You probably are special. You're glowing. Let's make tents. I'll do it right now. And then he was still speaking. <laughs> Peter was still speaking. When behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Peter's talking and God talks over him and says, listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. I mean, you just imagine these are real people. Peter's really talking and God really speaks over him and he's like, okay, shutting it down now. Listen to Jesus. And then, of course, when in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26, uh, in verse 36, when Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And in their true flesh, in the biggest moment of Christ's life on earth, when he really needs his friends, what, is, what do they do? They fall asleep. Peter falls asleep. Jesus says, I know your flesh is weak. Spirit's willing, your flesh is weak. But here we just see a little bit of glimpse into this inner circle. And as Americans, with fairness and everyone's got to be equal. We kind of struggle with Jesus here. Why didn't you bring all 12? Don't you think the other nine felt bad? Well, evidently God does things different than the way we do it in America. And he's God and he can choose whoever he wants. And he can have some relationships with his apostles that seem to be more intimate uh, than others. But that's group one. Group two, uh, we don't have a lot of time uh, Philip always heads up this group. And uh, Bartholomew, which is also uh, called Nathaniel, uh, 
Some of these guys seem to have two names. Sometimes Matthew uses one and Luke will use the other. Just like we have Simon Peter, it seems like there's Bartholomew Nathaniel. We don't know if Christ gave him the name Nathaniel or if he had two names. Um, but just to give you a little remembrance of who these guys are, remember group two we know far less than group one. But in John 143, uh, we read, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, come and see him. So there we see the shine, a few shiny moments of those two. Um, and then we get Matthew in group two, who is a tax collector. Uh, we've already talked about this a little bit. This would have been maybe the most despised. They, they would be more hated than the most corrupt politician maybe in our day. Someone using their power their political power to rip people off uh, rather than do good for them. Uh, here's Matthew, uh, a tax collector. Um, and uh, then we have Thomas. And what do you know about Thomas? Doubting Thomas that said, I won't believe unless I can put my fingers in his hands. I'm not believing. So... Um, that's group two. And then uh, group three, uh, we have, uh, let me find my spot. James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot. Now, the zealots were interesting in that their purpose in life was to overthrow Rome. And zealous zealots were famous for, they're a Jewish sect that wants to take control. They don't want to be under the rule of Rome anymore. And they were famous for having daggers uh, kind of stuffed into their cloak so that at an opportune time they might kill some Roman official. And and you can read about the Maccabean revolt uh, during that 400 years when there was no prophet in Israel. And this is a revolt led by uh, people uh, who were zealots. And so imagine Matthew, tax collector, <laughs> a Jewish man ripping the Jews off for the sake of Rome, and now you're going to bring into the same group Simon the zealot. It's like, Matthew, better watch out for his life. <laughs> these, these two don't seem to be uh, the best fit. Um. And then we have Judas, son of James, Judas Iscariot. All that to say, why did he pick this group? Unlikely, the unlikely men of Jesus. And I want to answer that question by reading what Paul said in 1 Corinthians one twenty-six. Here's what he says. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise 
according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things in the world, here's the reason, get ready, to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Now, we know the R's and the R's nots, right? We're all R-nots in the big scope of things. I'm sorry. You're a Baptist church in the middle of an Episcopal building in Aberdeen, South Dakota. Nobody knows of us. We're the R-nots of the world. But God chooses the R-nots to bring the nothing, the things that are. God chooses the losers, the are-nots, so he can shame the wise, shame the strong, shame those who are popular and think it's all about me. You realize? Don't you feel good? You're a Christian because God worked in your heart and chose the weak things. See, all your excuse list gets ripped up and thrown away when you look at the gospel. That's the purpose of God. Here's here's five things MacArthur says about them. First, they were obtuse and lacking spiritual understanding for which Jesus repeatedly rebuked them. You still, are you, how many many parables do I got to tell you? Okay, I mean, you just get the idea reading the gospels. It's like, man, You guys are spiritually dense. Do you ever feel that way? Well, be encouraged. Second, the apostles lacked humility. He he writes, they were frankly egotistical, self-centered, proud, focused on among them who was the greatest. I mean, literally, they're living with Jesus. They're hanging out with Jesus. And while Jesus is up there walking, they're in back trying to figure out, I'm better than you. No, you're not. Well, I'm going to get my mom to go up and talk to Jesus. And you're going to sit at this side of the... I mean, third, the apostles were weak in faith, fearing that their boat would be swamped. And they cried, save us, Lord, for we are perishing. Fourth, the apostles especially Peter deserting uh, Jesus when he was finally arrested, demonstrated their lack of commitment. <laughs> they deserted him when they got arrested. They weren't dependable. And finally, the apostles lacked power. At one point, they were puzzled by their inability to cast out a demon, and they asked Jesus, why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus remedied their lack of spiritual power by sending them the Holy Spirit. They were not who anybody would choose. And I want to show you Peter in action and give you a little bit of idea how amazing this is. Acts 4, starting in verse 1. You got to get the picture. G, uh, Peter just heals a man who's been crippled for his whole life. He's more than 40 years old. And this is causing all sorts of problems because the apostles are doing 
the same caliber miracles that Jesus was doing. And these fishermen, here's what what we read about them in in verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple, these are big dogs, the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of them came to about 5,000. So we see the unstoppable word. (laughs) Peter's in prison, but (laughs) the word's spreading. Verse 5, on the next day, their rulers, now the really big dogs come, the rulers, the elders, the scribes were gathered there in Jerusalem with Ananias, uh, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. You get in the picture? They're all showing up. And when they had set them in the, in the midst, they, meaning the apostles, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? How did you make that <coughs> man well, is what they're asking. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, that's the key, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning the good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands well before you. Woo! This fisherman's talking pretty big to the big dogs. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And he's pointing to Psalm 118, verse 19. Speaking of the day of salvation is going to come, uh, here's what that says. Open to me the gates of righteousness that, that, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you. You have answered me and become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected had become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And Peter's saying, you want to know what? All the big dogs? You are the guys who rejected the stone. And that stone has become marvelous. That's where righteousness comes from. That's how you're going to enter through the gates. And then he says in verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else. You're all hating Christ and we're preaching Christ. There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Don't you love it? They know they're nobodies and yet God is working powerfully through them. MacArthur writes, since there are no qualified people, God in his grace had to choose unworthy, unqualified people to minister for him. 
Saving and sanctifying grace transforms them into useful servants. The 12, like all believers, were unqualified sinners saved by God's redeeming grace and sovereignly chosen by him for service. And if you just go look at everyone whom God used all throughout the Old Testament, he chose sinners, those who didn't succeed. And then I love this. The gospel, not those who proclaim it, is the power of God for salvation unto everyone who believes. You say, Sam, God can't use me. And I say, amen, brother. Amen, sister. But guess what? God uses the gospel to save people through ordinary, everyday people who aren't eloquent, that don't have all the right words to say, that have neighbors. Maybe you think, well, I'll never be an evangelist. Well, you got a neighbor you can talk to. You can ask them how their day was, and you can pray for them, and you can pray for God to give you an opportunity to let them know of the hope that you have in this fallen world. And it's not based on how gifted you are. Spiritual leadership, MacArthur writes, differs markedly from natural leadership. Natural leaders trust their own judgment and make their own decisions. Spiritual leaders humbly seek God's will. Natural leaders are ambitious and driven Spiritual leaders seek God's will and glory. Natural leaders enjoy exercising authority over others. Spiritual leaders seek to serve others. Natural leaders are motivated by success. Spiritual leaders by love for God. Natural leaders are independent. Spiritual leaders are totally dependent on God. Close quote. God can use you, finally the unmatched unity of Jesus. I'll just make the point simply. It's impossible, according to human worldly standards, that this group gets along. Then anything successful comes out of this group. This would be like getting a group of six Democrats, six Republicans, six Vikings fans, six Packer fans. You know, and you you just plug in the illustrations. This group cannot work unless Jesus is the Son of God. Unless God can change people at a heart level. That's why in Jesus' high priestly prayer, right before he goes to the cross, here's what he prays. He's praying for you in verse 20. John 17, verse 20. Jesus says, I don't ask for these only, meaning only my disciples that are here with me, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and I. Jesus prayed for us. This is awesome. That they may all be one, just as you, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. They have the unity they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. Jesus says, God, I want, I want the world to know that I wasn't just some crazy guy that showed up on this earth, but that it was you that sent me. So I pray 
that you help them have unity. And the world will look at this ragtag bunch of people that should never get along, that should never be friends, and they'll say, Jesus had to be real. He had to, he had to be the Son of God. And then verse 22, the glory that you've given to me, I've given to them, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Did you know that our unity in this church body, according to Jesus, is one of the ways God's going to let the world out there know that he loves them or loves us even as he loved his own son. I mean, I'm sorry, but if you read verse 23 with your eyes open, that you loved them even as you loved me. Do you believe God loves you that way? Jesus is saying, my father loves you that way. And our unity is going to show the world that. And then this is just bonus because I love verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. When we're praying for someone who's sick and dying and we're saying, God, heal them, God wants us to pray prayers like that. But there's another prayer that's been prayed 2,000 years ago where Jesus, the Son of God, says, Father, let them come up and be with me where I am and see the glory that I had before the foundation of the world. Either way, God's going to give you grace and give you more time on this earth or Jesus' prayer is going to be answered. But it's our unity that is going to show the love. So here's how you apply it. Pray, submit to the God who chooses unlikely things, believe the word of the apostles, build on top of that foundation, don't go off in some weird direction. Go humbly bold. You see, Peter had to realize, he's like, I'll never deny you. Well, he's trusting in his own power. He had to see that he denies him three times. Now he can be used. He loses all hope in his own goodness. Now God can use him. So he was humbled, and that humbled Peter who knows he's nothing in the power of the Spirit stands against all the powerful leaders. This Jesus whom you crucified, he's the only name under heaven by which man must be saved. Go make disciples humble and bold. And if you come to me and say, I'm not gifted, I'm just going to say amen. That's who God uses. And the purpose of our salvation is to bring glory to God in our love and unity for each other. Father, thank you so much for what we can learn just from a list of names. Uh, Father, we know that <laughs> this text goes on where they all come down and everybody flocks to Jesus and the power is in Christ. But in a few chapters later, Father, we see Christ transfer that power to people just like us and turn the world upside down. So, Father, I pray that you would give us confidence in you and not in ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.